0: Ephesians 4 and the guys have some Bibles so that if you need one get their attention and they'll give that to you and when I say give I mean that it's our gift to you we want everybody to own a Bible and so that's our gift for you to have a copy of the Word of God marked at Ephesians chapter 4 we have for the last several months been going through a series through the book of Ephesians the title of the series is on the screen behind me your place in God's plan And we have gotten to a passage that I'll identify in just a moment that is a convenient spot for us to have an interlude, a sort of break from the verse-by-verse exposition of Ephesians. It's a convenient spot for a couple of reasons. One, if you'll take a look at where we left off in chapter 4 and verse 28, which says, "He He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands and then notice the purpose clause here's why all of that should happen that he may have something to share with those in need we have stopped there for the last few weeks and will for the next couple of weeks because that last sentence teaches us that we are to seek margin what I call margin in our resources We're to seek that margin, though, verse 28 tells us, not so that we can hoard what we acquire, but so that we can use it for God's purposes. And one of those purposes is to meet the needs of others. So one of the reasons that we have stopped for this interlude is because I wanted to expand on that idea of meeting the needs of others. But a second reason we've taken a break is because, as most of you know, we've come to this particular passage at a unique time for the history of our church it's a time of reflection for us because next Sunday is our 10-year anniversary as a church if you have not gotten your tickets for next week's banquet then I encourage you to do that during our break between services you can get those at the resource center and God has been very very good to our church And so having been told in Ephesians 4.28 that we have in order to give, and secondly, in conjunction with our 10-year anniversary, I thought it was good for us to be reminded that God has given us this ministry in order to meet the needs of others. Yes, material needs, but most important, spiritual needs. And I've reminded you these last couple of weeks that early on in the life of our church, I taught a series, the title of which is at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you haven't pulled that out yet, I encourage you to take a look at it. And at the top of the outline, it says, A Full Service Church. It's the title of a series I did in the early years of our church. And that title was and is intentionally chosen in order to communicate that we want to be a church in which... One, every member is a minister. That is, everyone is fully serving to the best of his or her God-given capacity. But then to communicate a second thing as well, and that is that we want to be a church that offers a full range of ministries. We have created, over these last several years, a culture of service in our church so that 70 to 80 percent of our congregation at any given time Is actively involved in ministry. And that mindset results in, for example, just this past week, folks taking initiative to ask me to meet with them so that they can start a ministry of distributing food baskets to needy families in the community for this Thanksgiving year. Now, we are in rented facilities. And so to be a full service church in rented facilities has some challenges, not problems. We just have challenges, not problems. And then we face and, by God's grace, overcome the challenges. But indeed, there are those challenges. We have to set up everything every week. Anything we want to do to the community, we're going to have to find a place to do that most often and set that up as well. So those are, those are challenges. And just as an aside, there are people who come in here every single week, very early while you are still rolling out of the rack they're here setting this stuff up the screens the sound all of that and so I want to thank publicly all of them who do that who serve the Lord in that way to make it possible for us to worship together and to to sing together and to hear the Word of God together as well and even when we hit a mishap with the microphone every now and then I am still extremely thankful for the folks who set that up and I want to acknowledge that in front of everyone Now, we're actively working, though, on obtaining what we call a ministry or service center. And I committed to you at the beginning of this year that we hope to know what we are going to be doing in that regard as it relates to a ministry center or a service center uh, by the end of this year. At least know what we're doing for the near term by year's end. And so stay tuned and continue to pray uh, that God opens doors for that. But whether we're in rented facilities or those that we own, the ministry that God has given us has moved forward and will continue to move forward. And so this is a good time for us to be reminded regarding what it means to be a full-service church. Now, if you've missed the prior message, messages, then those messages, like all of our messages, are online at our website. If you look at the bottom of the outline that you have, It tells you our website URL. You can go there, click on media, and then you can listen to past messages, and I encourage you to do that. Now take a look, and you'll see the definition then of ministry and service that we've been using these last few weeks for this interlude on what it means to be a full-service church. We have printed for you there that service takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels, to the glory of God. We've looked at the first two of the four principles in that definition, that service takes place when divine resources are used, and we've seen that the word that best summarizes the resources that God makes available to us as his servants is the word grace. We've seen from, for example, John 1. That the Bible tells us from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. And I've said to you that the image here is like that of an ocean with wave after wave coming into shore in unending fullness of God's grace. And of course, grace is not something that we earn. It is not something that we deserve. But grace is something that we receive as God's loving gift, and then we share it with others. And so in ministry, in service, we are to be conduits and not cul-de-sacs. We are to be distributors, not manufacturers. What we have to give, whether to meet spiritual or physical needs, comes ultimately from the gracious hand of God who is given to us that we may have to give to others. Ephesians 4.28 and so service takes place when divine resources, then we saw last week, meet human needs. Human needs are, as we noted, really unlimited. And therefore ministry opportunities are unlimited. We saw that for all the needs that human, ha- human beings have, the most important is to be reconciled to God through the cross of Christ. And therefore, for all of the other ministries that we have now and will have in the future, our most important ministry is the ministry of the gospel. We can, and I believe we should, seek to show the love of Christ by helping to alleviate misery when we can in the broken world in which we live. We live in a very broken world. Broken relationships. Parents' relationships broken with their children. Husbands and wives with broken relationships. Friends who become enemies. Broken relationships and broken bodies. Bodies that have been abused by substance, addictions, disease. Live in a broken society. Doesn't know right from wrong. Is no longer hold on to the traditions that sustained our society for so many years. Those have now been jettisoned. And so we live in a, a very broken society in which the light of Christ can and I believe should shine through his love through his people. Human misery, this brokenness is universal and so it offers unlimited opportunities for ministry notice friends these are opportunities when you look at our society you may be like me tempted to become angry what we should do is say lord look at all of the opportunities now to show your love and your grace in your world human misery though we know is ultimately caused by sin and the remedy for sin is found only in the gospel Our mission is ultimately to see people reconciled to God, the God who will one day, thanks be to God, end all human misery. Service takes place when divine resources meet human needs, and now today, through the third principle in that definition, loving channels. The needs are met through... Channels, human channels, like you and me. That means that service, ministry, is not automatic. God provides the resources. God is the manufacturer, but he has chosen you and me to be his supply chain. God is the manufacturer, it's his stuff, but he has chosen. He doesn't need, but he's chosen you and me to be his supply chain. The resources God has given will only be distributed as he has intended when those to whom they are given love others as he does. The things that he has entrusted to us, the gifts that he has given to us graciously by his divine resources will only be distributed as he intends when those to whom they are given, you and me, see other people Love other people as God does. Now, if you care to jot these down, I have a couple of things that it means to love others as God loves. If I'm going to truly love, then I have to first see as God does. And I must see a couple of categories of people as God does. I must see others as God sees them, and then I must see myself as God sees me. If I'm going to love, I need to see as God does, meaning I must see others as he does, and I must see myself as he sees me. Now, first, I have to see others as God sees them. You know, I think there are what I call forest people and tree people and then and there are few people who are both you've heard the phrase he or she can't see the forest for the trees it's a way of saying that someone may not see the big picture because they are so focused on the details and so a forest person can visualize and can dream and can see the end but they don't always see the tasks and the people and the other resources that are needed to get from here to there they see the forest, but they don't see the trees. That person's what I call a dreamer rather than a visionary. Nice dream, no plan to get there. Others are so lost in the details that they lose sight of why they're pursuing those details. And then some of us can see both in some settings, but not in others. I'm like them. In the church, in the ministry of the church, I can see the forest, the big picture, and I can see the details needed to get there. Some of, you, some of you know through painful experience that I sweat the small stuff. So anything that goes wrong on a Sunday morning, no matter how slight, I make note of and we correct. It may happen again, but not for lack of effort. We sweat the so-called small stuff. I, I care about, and I think we should care about, the details. So in the ministry of the church, I can, see, I can see both of those. But if I go to a nice, for instance, well-groomed park, have any of you ever been to Jackson Park in Windsor, just across the, the bridge in Queen Elizabeth Gardens? If you ever get a chance to go there, I recommend you do that. You'll just be amazed that any place could have a public park as beautiful as that for no charge and it's maintained in this pristine beautiful condition and nobody messes it up and there are no derelicts laying around or anything you just get to walk through there and you're not afraid well, you have to go to another country for that so we like to go there we've gone there a number of times over over the years but when I, but when I go into a place like that I, I see a big beautiful picture but I don't see the individual flowers at all. Kim notices every detail, every flower, and what different type it is, and she, and she comments on all of them. Now as a result of that, I can be one of those people who, as they say, does not take time to smell the roses or smell the coffee. As a matter of fact, I'm not very sensory at all. Sight, smell, touch. I don't take time to do it because I don't sense it naturally. Some of you do, I don't. Now here's where that becomes important. I have to regularly remind myself that the waitress or the cashier or the parking attendant is not just a tree in the forest. I find myself very easily overlooking the person And focusing on the larger task: get lunch, get parked, get out of the store, whatever it is. And I have to remember, there are not just details or trees along the way. Flowers and puppies and coffee beans. There are really, really important trees called, called people. Who are made in the image of God. Marvelous. Wonderful, hurting, sinful people. I have to be regularly reminded. And people, friends, are always more important than the agenda. People are always more important than the agenda. In fact, other than God Himself, people are the agenda. Jonah had an agenda that overlooked people. You all remember that? God told Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach to Nineveh. And the Ninevites were notorious for their viciousness. And Jonah, for understandable reasons, at least as far as that goes, did not want want to go. And you know the story that He went the opposite direction. He was on a ship. God brought a storm. Those on the ship were concerned about the source of the storm. They identified Jonah as the reason. They threw him overboard. And he was in the belly of a great fish for three three days and three nights. Now, that is often thought of as that's his punishment, being in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. I wouldn't find that to be particularly pleasant. But it wasn't his punishment. It was his rescue. In fact, Jonah, by his own testimony, praises God when he's finally spit up on shore for having saved his life when he was, as it were, going down for the third time. God graciously saved this disobedient prophet's life who was heading in a different direction. But why was he heading in this different direction? Yes, the Ninevites are mean and cruel and vicious. And there was good reason to be afraid of them, but it turns out that's not the reason. Jonah had an agenda, and the agenda didn't include the Ninevites. Why? He doesn't like them. Yes, they're made in the image of God. Yes, they fit the description that I gave earlier of marvelous and wonderful and hurting and sinful people, but they don't fit Jonah's Jonah's agenda. But Jonah went to Nineveh only reluctantly, and then he was angry. When our gracious God showed the same mercy to them that he had extended to Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4, this is what he says to God. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, and you're slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And Jonah is saying this as a complaint. See, God, there's a problem here. This is the kind of God you are, and you just go showing this to all kinds of people, including people I don't like, including people who aren't on my radar, aren't in my agenda. And God responds to Jonah. He says, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Now, they can't tell their right hand from their left. He's saying, as it were, they are like children. Children have to be taught left from right. They're like children who have to be taught, directed. They have no direction for their their lives. That's also used sometimes in a moral sense. Left and right, don't veer to... Always stay to the right, don't veer to the, the left. Because the left was an image of going out down the wrong path and not knowing... Left from the right is not knowing right from wrong. They don't have direction. They don't have moral direction. So God says, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Just as an aside, and many cattle? Really, you care about the cattle? And I have to tell you, that's instructive for, for me a non-tree guy. I know you've got the cutest puppy ever. But I don't like notice puppies. And I just got to be honest I don't really even care that much about puppies. Unless they bite me or do something nasty to me. But God made them and he cares about them. And, and, And God cares most of all about those who are made in his image. And that's why... In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, our God instituted capital punishment for those who would destroy those made in the image of God. He gives the very reason there. Those who shed man's blood will have their own blood shed by man because they have destroyed one made in the image of God. So I ask you, friend, as I ask myself, how do you see people? If you're going to love, if we're going to love, we must see people as God sees them. See others as God does. How do you see them? Do you see them as cogs in the machine that is your agenda? I ask you today, in this setting, how will you interact and see the people that are in this room? Are they cogs in the machine of your agenda? Or do you see them as the precious treasure that they are, as God does? And interact accordingly. How do you think about the people in your neighborhood? Or in the larger community? If we're going to love, we're going to have to see others as God sees them. And how did God see people when he walked the dusty roads of Palestine? The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, Matthew 9:36 of the Lord Jesus when he saw the crowds it says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd is that the way you see people in the larger community that we have been called to serve and to minister to if we're going to love then we're going to have to see others as God sees them. But we're also, secondly, going to have to see ourselves. I'm going to have to see myself. You're going to have to see yourself as God sees us. The truth is sometimes we, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions, we betray an attitude that says, I'm really better than those people. I deserve God's mercy and God's grace. Isn't that what Jonah was doing? I praise God for saving my life, but don't save them. And how you see others is in large part a function of how you see yourself. So friend, how did you get where you are? How did you become what you are right now? How did you gather what it is that you own right now? Is it because you're a self-made man or woman? (laughs) Rush Limbaugh says that. Rush Limbaugh says that. And God doesn't. Rush Limbaugh's wrong. When he talks about rugged individualism as the means by which we are what we are, God says, it's by my grace that you are what you are. And the Bible teaches that very thing. How did Paul, the great apostle, see himself? He said this about himself. First Corinthians, he said, I am the least of the apostles. In Ephesians chapter 3, he said, I am the least of all God's people. And in 1 Timothy 1, he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The King James says, I am the chief of sinners. What's interesting about Paul's perspective on himself is that his perspective became more and more negative about himself as time went on. If you were to lay out those three passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 3 and 1 Timothy 1, and lay those out in chronological fashion, they were written in the order that I have them on the screen. And earlier on, Paul saw himself as the least among the apostles, but you know, the apostles are still a pretty exclusive group. So humility, but that humility grew as time went on. I'm the least, not only of the apostles, I'm the least among all of God's people. And then when he comes to the end of his ministry, he says, I am the chief of sinners one way to test whether you see people through the lens of humility is to think about how you talk about others so the drug addict well you know if they had taken the path that I've taken they'd studied hard played by the rules they wouldn't be in the predicament they're in now let's be honest we say those kinds of things. We think those kinds of things. Let me ask you how, do you, how do you view homeless people? I've actually heard Christian people joke about homeless people and talk about how homelessness is sort of a cottage industry for some of these guys. And some of you may have said this. I don't have anybody in mind, but you may have. You've probably heard it. You know, it's sort of, a, sort of an industry. These guys, these homeless people are kind of entrepreneurial. They have a little business going on. I mean, they're just raking in the dough, begging for stuff. Now, I have no doubt that there are people out there who are playing like they can't do anything else, and they're just living off the largesse of others. But, friends, that is not, that is not, by and large, why people are homeless. And it is not for us to look at people who are in need and to simply say they're scamming you somehow. And yet, that's what even Christian people do. How do you view the unemployed? Or maybe I should say, how did you before you were unemployed? You see, it's really easy to see people as less than you when you're in better circumstances. And then when it happens to you. Or let me ask, how do do you view the immoral? We live in a decadent culture. We live in an immoral culture. I do not like that. I certainly do not like that. Paul didn't like it. Jesus didn't like it. But despite the fact that Jesus didn't like what the culture was doing, and Paul did not like what the culture was doing, Jesus and Paul and we must love the people in that culture. If I'm going to love, then I'm going to have to see people as God sees them. I'm going to have to see my others as God sees them. I'm going to have to see myself as God sees me. I'm also going to have to do this if I'm going to love I'm going to have to give as God gives I have to see as God sees and I have to give as God gives you know that love in scripture is defined primarily in terms of giving and so the most famous verse in the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son And friends there when it says God so loved the world. It is, not, it is not saying that God loved the world so much that he gave. I mean, that's true, but that's not what that verse is saying. It's saying, when it says the, the word so there, it's, it's saying literally this, God loved the world like so, like this. This is the way God loved the world. And when it says the object of his love is the world, the Greek word is cosmos and John uses that word several times in his gospel and in the three letters that he wrote as well and it's negative it's the arrangement of the world's value system that is contrary to God so it is not just that God has so much love that he loved every person in the world that's true too but God loves the world this negative arrangement that is contrary to God's priorities and values And has realigned itself against God. God so loved the world that he gave. And that same giving is required of you and me. John wrote in his first letter, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives us. For our brothers. Love requires giving. And not just giving, but sacrificial giving. Right? Isn't that what's being described here? I mean, laying down your life, does that qualify? As sacrificial? So what is it going to require to be given if we're going to love as God loves? We're going to sacrificially give of time. We're going to sacrificially give of money. We're going to sacrificially give comfort. Right? If you're going to love as God loves, you're going to have to give. You're going to have to give sacrificially, and that means giving time. That means giving money. That means giving up. Often it means giving up comfort. Now why? Why do I say it means giving up comfort? Because people are a pain. The people that you're called to love and I am called to love are a pain. There is a zoological term, Irenaceous, irin- and it describes the hedgehog family. And people are sometimes like hedgehogs the closer you get to them the more they stick you with their protective quills you want to help them but if you do you're going to get hurt serving God means working with people and people not only have problems people can be problems sometimes people fail to deal with their needs properly and they grow these invisible protective quills to keep other people at a distance And unless you really love those people, friends, you can never help them. It's going to mean sacrificing comfort. We saw last week that you and I must be rightly related to the needs of others. We can't be, we saw last week, blind to their needs or ignore their needs or use their needs as opportunities to promote ourselves. But hear this, the people that we're trying to help might take any or all of those same approaches to their own problems. They might be blind to their own real needs. Or they might constantly want to go on a a detour. Or they choose to ignore ignore their needs and to blame it on somebody else. Or there are people who have learned to exploit their needs and and thereby to get what they want from others. They can't afford to solve their problems because their whole lifestyle is built on those problems. That third category is probably the most difficult to help. you're going to be sacrificing comfort if you love as God loves because people are difficult. But we've got to remember that as loving channels of the grace of God, we've got to remember what Bernard of Clairvaux said. Justice seeks out the merits of the case. Pity regards only the need. Justice seeks out the merits of the case. Pity regards only the need. there is no such thing as convenient love so what is love here's a working definition for you love is doing what is in the best interests of another doing what's in the best interests of another I believe that's true to what the scriptures teach as a concise working definition of love it is doing and doing what is in the best interest of another and having that approach keeps you from being an enabler in when, you, when you show your love. Now I'm going to conclude in just a, just a few moments. But friends, we need to remember that if we're going to love, we must first see people as God sees them. We must give as God gives. That's going to mean that we're sacrificing time, we're sacrificing money, we're sacrificing comfort because people are very difficult. We're very difficult. And if we're going to do that, we have to be enabled by the love of God ourselves. To put it another way, I can't give what I don't have. You cannot give what you do not have yourself. And so in order for me and in order for you to love that way, We are going to have to remember the love that we have received from God ourselves. We're going to have to see ourselves as God sees us. And despite who we are, Christ died for us. And continues to love us every moment of every day. When I do that, when I remember the experience of the love of God that I have been graced to have, that you have been graced to have then I can look at people as I, as he looks at me. Then I can see myself as I, as I truly am and no longer seeing myself in prideful, boastful ways that see myself as better than others. In order to love others, I must remember that I'm loved by God and I must love God. If I'm going to love others, remember I'm loved by God. Who don't... And I don't deserve it. And if I'm going to love others, it's because I love God. 1 John 2.19, we love, and sometimes some translations say we love him because he first loved us. The word him is not actually there. Now it's true that we love him, we love God because he first loved us. But it just says, 1 John 2.19, we love because he first loved us. The reason you love is because you've been loved. And you will only love others when you remember the love that God has given to you despite the fact that you don't deserve it. You say, you know, I find myself convicted. I don't love as I should. I'm convicted. I've already admitted to you. I don't see people as I should. I have to be reminded of that regularly. So friends, as we're convicted, we don't want to leave this room saying, what did you learn at church today? Well, pastor told me again what a heel I am. and What a crumb I am. And I just need to love more. I'm not telling you you just need to love more. I'm telling you that if you have come to God through Jesus Christ, you have the capacity to love more. It's not just bucket up in your own strength. You can't do that. But you have the capacity to love more. Why? Because He has given you His Holy Spirit. He is giving you and working in you the fruit of the Holy Spirit. One of those is love. I have the capacity to love because Christ has first loved me. We as a church have the capacity to love this community because Christ has first loved us. Think about what a church can do when it shows that kind of love, selfless, sacrificial love, to its community. The next five and ten years are going to be a great time here as God works His love not only, not only through us but works His love in us. And in the midst of dealing with all those difficult people, every one of us here, and people we haven't met yet, in the midst of doing all of that, God is going to work His will in us, not just through us, and conform us to the image of jesus what an exciting prospect that is that through us showing the love of god to our community we're going to reach more people and god is going to reach into our hearts and conform us to the image of jesus so don't leave here just saying pastor just told me i need to love more if you've come to god through jesus christ you have the capacity to love better and he will give you what you ask for According to James chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom, do what? Let him ask of God. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the application of knowledge, it's the application of what I know. I know I should do what Pastor laid out today. Lord, I ask you to help me to do that. And the Bible says if you ask him for that wisdom, he grants that request. Now, You can only love if you've experienced the love of God yourself. Have you done that? Have you come to God through Jesus Christ? And how does that happen? The love of God was demonstrated most profoundly when God himself came out of his comfort zone to this earth to be handled and beaten and cruelly murdered for you. He died to pay the penalty for your sin. He lived a perfect life that's applied to you when you come to him. You recognize your need for that. Realize that you're a sinner. Recognize that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. Repent. Repent means say, Lord, I've gone my own way. I'm going to go your way. I'm going to follow you. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. He gives you his Holy Spirit then so that you don't have the capacity to love that you didn't have before. How do you do that? You ask. We're going to bow. And as we bow, Christian friends, I encourage you to ask God for wisdom, to apply in your life and in your heart as I need to apply in mine the knowledge that he's given us from his word about what kind of people we need to be to each other and to our community. And those of you that have never come to Christ, you can do that right now in this moment from your heart to God. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. I want to follow you with my life. I ask you to forgive me of my sin and take my life. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this time together to be reminded of the love that you have shown to us. We thank you for the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of Christ. And only eternity will allow us to plumb the, the wideness, the, the depth, the length of the love that you have shown to us. Lord, I cannot get my mind around how the holy God and creator of the universe loves me. But I believe it because Jesus has demonstrated it. God the Son has shown your love by giving himself for me. Lord, I want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. And therefore, we want to love like Jesus. We want to give of ourselves for those that you entrust to our care. A willingness to sacrifice time, money, and comfort. It's not our time. It's not our money. And comfort is much less valuable to us than are the souls of men and women made in the image of our God. Help us to be people who see it that way, and then people who act upon what we see. Help us to see people as you see them. Help us to see ourselves as you see us, and help us to give to others as you have given to us. Thereby, Lord God, may this be a place that is truly a light in darkness, where people see the love of God radiating here, both within and without our community of faith. And by this will all men know that you're my followers. If you love one another, may we do that to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.